Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm Emily Crandall, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, one of your hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. Today, I'm speaking with Sandra Harding, who is Distinguished Professor of Education and Gender Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. We are discussing her book, Objectivity and Diversity, Another Logic of Scientific Research, out from University of Chicago Press in 2015. This is a very rich and interesting book, which pulls together a plethora of different arguments, engaging folks from philosophy of science to post-colonial feminist and indigenous scholars and activists, to ultimately make the claim that the scientific value of objectivity and the social justice value of diversity need not be in conflict with one another, and indeed can and ought to be brought together to research. The book examines different historical configurations of the term objectivity itself, reviewing the case for Harding's conception of strong objectivity from the feminist standpoint, and reinforcing the claim that societies and their sciences co-produce one another. It looks at several cases to demonstrate the value of diverse perspectives for the sciences, including women's movements research on development projects of the Cold War, the navigation systems of Micronesian Pacific Islanders, and the Canadian Cree Goose Hunters. In chapters 5 and 6, the book examines the social context for modern Western sciences, asking in what ways the commitment to scientific unity was itself a political commitment, as well as whether the sciences have been secular or whether they must be. The book concludes with several suggestive guidelines for research that uphold both a commitment to strong objectivity as well as a commitment to the social justice value of diversity. It is a fascinating book. I highly recommend, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, and welcome to the New Books in Global Ethics and Politics podcast. I'm Emily, and I'm here today with Sandra Harding, who is a Distinguished Professor of Education and Gender Studies at UCLA. And we're talking about her book that came out last year, Objectivity and Diversity, Another Logic of Scientific Research. Thank you, Sandra, for being here today. It's a pleasure. So generally with this podcast, we like to start with just asking you to share a little bit about your intellectual and academic background and how you came to write this particular book. Okay. I'm pretty old, so my intellectual background (laughs) is long, but I'll I'll keep it short. But I should say that it has been very much shaped by the, the politics of the particular eras I've been in and how I've participated in them. So let me start when I went back to graduate school in philosophy, which was in 1968, and a very famous year politically. However, the My point is that the women's movement was already forming in Albany, New York. New York State had a liberalized abortion law two years before Roe v. Wade. And so a number of us academic or pre-academic women had formed together uh, to help young women uh, connect with places to get an abortion. Albany was also a very Catholic city. Um, So um, at the At the moment when I was entering graduate school, the social justice movements of the late 1960s were emerging. The civil rights movement was very active in Albany, the state capital, as well as the women's movement. And as my friends and graduate students in philosophy started to pick their dissertation topics, they were going to write in the areas of political philosophy and ethics. But I was working in philosophy of science and epistemology. And how could somebody working in that field do anything on politics? It was not at all clear to me or to my colleagues. So there were a a few years at the beginning of my career there where I kind of stumbled around with feminists in in biology, such as Ruth Hubbard, in political science, such as Nancy Hartsock, in sociology, such as Maggie Anderson. And we would um, we secure a, a spot on one of our disciplinary programs, the American Political Science Association or Philosophy Association, and we'd sit on the platform and kind of do parallel play. We didn't really know how to connect our epistemological and philosophy of science and social science issues, but we knew there should be connections. So it was a very exciting moment. 
Um, I did my dissertation on Quine, who, of course, was trying to break from logical positivism. Uh, many would argue he didn't succeed, but he's generally marked by historians as a very significant uh, figure in that era, along with Thomas Kuhn and so forth. Then my first teaching job um, in 1973 was at a little uh, leftover 60s college uh, that was part of SUNY Albany. It was an alternative early admissions college. And the 17 faculty were mostly radicals from Berkeley uh, political days. Um, so I started, they, two of the guys, physicists, sat in on my feminist philosophy class uh, and my philosophy of science class, and they took me aside later and said, Sandra, you're not going to pollute those minds with that logical positivism, are you? (laughs) (laughs) It was um, very challenging for me and very exciting. That college got uh, uh, defunded, quote-unquote, in 1976 and procedures that have left SUNY Albany on the AAUP censure list to this day. If you look up the AAUP censure list of colleges... The first one on it is 1976 SUNY Albany, and that's because of the way they shut down our college. At any rate, um, I moved to the University of Delaware, and Delaware, and I taught there 20 years, Delaware had been a border state in the Civil War. My house was one mile south of the Mason-Dixon line. The Ku Klux Klan met about five blocks from the University of Delaware every year, and there were always students on the student newspaper who would put on a white sheet and go pretend to be Klan's people and write an article about it. So anyway, and my children were in elementary school, and um, our county in, in Delaware had managed to postpone busing 19 years. The Supreme Court decision on busing, where the focus was mostly on Boston, uh, Newcastle County, Delaware had also been one of the six counties that was the target of the Supreme Court. But in 1976, this was their first year of busing. Um, and so, it, uh, it, I mean, it was a, an era of high turmoil and very challenging and exciting to start to figure out how to bring epistemology and philosophy of science to bear on these issues and vice versa those issues to bear on philosophy of science. Um, I directed women's studies at Delaware for eight years, and it was a very big program. By the time I left in 1990 or whatever it was, uh, it it was offering 100 courses, 100 courses, um, many out of women's studies and others joint with sociology and so forth. My best friends there were also women who had feminists who had directed um, women's studies. One was Margaret Anderson, who co-edited Race, Class, and Gender with Patricia Hill Collins, which is in its whatever, fourth edition or something, (laughs) basic sociology book. And Gloria Hull, who had been part of the Compahee River Collective, mm-hmm. early African-American lesbian feminist group, and had been a co-editor of the book entitled All the Women Were White, All the Men Were Black, But Some of Us Were Brave, which was a very revolutionary, as you probably know, early um, black feminist uh, collection. So I had wonderful colleagues uh, who taught me a lot about uh, race theory While I was at Delaware, I did a lot of uh, anti-racist work on the curriculum. Um, And I also, for maybe five years, um, co-formed a kind of socialist feminist study group. And the other people in it were Nancy Hartsock, uh, were from Johns Hopkins, Nancy Hartsock in political science, and Donna Haraway. Um, who's, as you know, another uh, standpoint, early standpoint theorist and feminist philosopher of science. Hartsock and Haraway had taught a course that refused to end, if you know what I mean. (laughs) The graduates kept on, so that was the basis of this study group. And it was in that study group that Nancy and I started, uh, Donna then left for Santa Cruz and remains a good friend to to this day, um, Nancy, who alas passed away uh, last year, 
um, and I started writing standpoint theory papers to each other. And so th- that was kind of the formation, the beginnings of one beginning of the formation of standpoint theory, which I took in the direction of uh, strong objectivity. Of course, there were other um, other feminists, uh, socialist feminists, doing the same kind of work, most notably the Canadian sociologist Dorothy Smith, who was the earliest and remained uh, the, what should I say, the um, most extensive writer on standpoint theory. And it was during those years that I first met Linda Alkoff, who I know is one of your professors at um, the Cooney Graduate Center. She was a very brilliant graduate student at Brown University when I visited her her epistemology seminar, graduate epistemology seminar one year. And um, I have learned an immense amount from her through the years. Um, then in, uh, when in 19, um, beginning in 1989 or 90, um, I had been recruited to UCLA for a number of years. They wanted somebody to direct their women's studies program. Then they wanted somebody to direct the Center for the Study of Women. And I was kind of obvious because we had this huge program at um, Delaware. And I finally uh, started out half-time, half-time at Delaware and half-time at UCLA for five years and went full-time at UCLA in in 1996. I became director of the Center for the Study of Women, which was not the Women's Studies Program. It was a research institute. We put on something like 60 lectures and conferences every year, many joint with other departments and so forth. But I got to meet all kinds of fabulous feminists from the U.S. and around the globe. And then I recruited, along with Kate Norberg in history, I recruited the journal Signs, uh, to UCLA, and for five years we edited it. Um, at UCLA, I have always taught a feminist philosophy course uh, out of the philosophy department. Um, it's co-listed with women's studies. But my main appointment um, is in um, the Graduate School, of Educa- Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, namely in the Department of Education. And I, I want to point here to two what I see as very significant aspects of my intellectual career. I've taught for 41 years, and for 40 of those years, I've had either a joint appointment or my main appointment in a social science department. Mm-hmm. I have always had social science graduate students. Um, now, at, for 20 years at UCLA, 22 or whatever it is by now, I and one other philosopher, Doug Kellner, are in a department that where all the other faculty are social scientists, 50 social scientists of education, wow. and Doug Kellner and I who are philosophers. Um, so in a way, I've lived in the laboratory mm-hmm. of my work, and it has an effect on my work. It makes me start from the, uh, the what should I say, um, the problems, the challenges that researchers have in grasping what are the important issues for a marginalized uh, students and how to make sense of the um, uh, confusing interview data, the uh, interview results, the uh, messy quantitative data, how to make it make sense. And so I think this makes me contrast with philosophers of science uh, an epistemologist, because I don't start from high theory. Mm-hmm. I start from challenges to social social justice groups, marginalized groups, and to researchers who want to work with them. Uh, the, the second point about my intellectual and political career, and this was pointed out to me uh, years ago by my colleague Sharon Trawick, who's a historian of science here at UCLA, She says, Sandra, what you do is you plant yourself on the borders of some institution and you refuse to go away. (laughs) And I think that's absolutely true. It's true of the discipline of philosophy. It's true of the American Philosophical Association. I'm on its borders and I do things for it, but I'm not, I refuse to get, you know, centrally involved in it. Mm -hmm. My issues are elsewhere. 
I do it with UCLA. My friends think for a philosopher to be in the Department of Education is a, what should I say, a a less um, prestigious position, Mm. right? Um, It's applied, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so forth. So um, I think these, in terms of my intellectual and academic background, that's also a political background, are what, 500 years old or older? and if, if all the significant researchers share those assumptions, there's no way that the logic of research, quote-unquote, um, recommended by illogical positivism or uh, logical empiricism, as it's referred to by analytic philosophy of science, can detect those social values and interests. Moreover, um, it, the... Uh, researchers are trying to make sense of the obvious fact that some political values and interests advance the growth of knowledge. Only some of them um, do not. Some of them retard it. But clearly feminism and the civil rights movement and uh, various post-colonialisms and decolonialisms, when they direct research, they direct attention to new to aspects of nature and social relations that have been invisible otherwise. Um, so in the book, in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, I take up these different literatures that have in fact been um, uh, contributing to the, um, which the compellingness, if I can put it that way, of uh, standpoint and strong objectivity arguments. So chapter 3 looks briefly at the women, gender, and development, third world development literature. Chapter four focuses on indigenous knowledge, changing uh, appreciations of it. Chapter five uh, returns home, so to speak, to look at um, new histories of uh, the uh, what happened when the Vienna Circle brought logical positivism to the U.S. and encountered... Um, uh, McCarthyism and the Cold War, George Reich's wonderful history uh, entitled How the Cold War Transformed Science, colon, to the Icy Slopes of Logic, um, is a fabulous discussion of the, of the um, correspondence between Carnap and Reichenbach um, as they, as they experience this uh, dreadful moment in U.S. political and intellectual history. Uh, and then chapter six looks at reevaluations of secularism. It turns out it's deeply culturally specific. And finally, in chapter seven, uh, new kinds of um, proper scientific self, so to speak, is Daston, Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison put the point, um, that have emerged in the arguments I'm talking about here uh, from the new standards for objectivity. Um, so I intend here to open spaces for more productive intellectual discussions and public debates on the philosophy of the natural and social sciences, not only in philosophy, but in all the disciplines. Philosophy of social sciences done in history and sociology and anthropology and so forth, and philosophy of sciences done in biology. It's not just done in philosophy. Um, so as a start, that's um, where I've come from and where I'm at. Please. Great. So you mentioned uh, several arguments of others that you draw on in the latter chapters of the book, but would you mind, you also advanced several arguments of your own throughout. Uh, would you mind perhaps walking through a couple of those for us? Okay, so let's uh, talk first about, um, briefly about um, that Reich, the chapter where I'm talking about, uh, George Reich. That's chapter five, Pluralism, Multiplicity, and the Disunity of Sciences. And I'm starting with this because for philosopher audiences, uh, this will probably be the most familiar literature. Um, Here I look at how, first of all, throughout the book, I'm taking on various particular um, arguments of uh, logical empiricism. So in this chapter, um, of course, the unity of science has been criticized by many people for the last, whatever, 30, 40 years. Uh, it's nothing new to do it. But it's interesting, uh, George Reich's book makes clear 
that the notion changed both its meanings and its reference when the Vienna Circle arrived in the United States. So he makes the point that the unity of science thesis in Vienna was a call for scientists to to address issues of social injustice, social problems, uh, to turn their research to these topics because the the fascists in the late 30s were already beginning to find, quote-unquote, hideous solutions to these problems. And so it was a call for sciences to focus their interests in a particular way. When it got to the United States, it became a thesis with Carnap in particular about the sciences. That is a very different kind of argument. It became a thesis about the nature of science that involved um, the the, uh, uh, hierarchy of the sciences uh, with physics at the top uh, and anthropology and psychology at the bottom. Um, so it became a very different kind of uh, narrative. And um, that's, that legacy, well, you know, hardly anybody would defend that uh, legacy of, you know, the unity of science these days. Um, it kind of haunts, uh, it, it haunts our attempts to figure out how to leave positivism without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and of course, there is, in terms of, recent uh, fascinating uh, discussions here, Um, there's the collection of papers called The Disunity of Science that was edited by Peter Gallison and David Stump, and then there's the fascinating one um, edited by Kellert, Longineau, and um, um, Waters um, on the uh, scientific pluralism. And it's a terrific study um, of pluralism in, in the sciences. Their introduction is great, and there's a number of essays that look at um, the disunity of concepts and methods and so forth in various sciences, economics, biology, and so forth. Uh, the sciences it's interested in are completely restricted to modern Western sciences. That it is, I think, only in some comments by maybe Alan Richardson, do we hear about indigenous knowledge at all? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's multiplicity of sciences, uh, it's scientific pluralism, does not extend outside modern Western science. And they're good. I'm not criticizing them for doing that. I mean, to reach the contemporary philosophy of science audience, that's an excellent way to do it. But here we have two two works very much from within the history and philosophy of science, the Dastin and Stump and the um, Kellert, Longino and Waters um, that are trying to move past these logical empiricist notions. Um, so uh, the, those are very useful to people with the kinds of interests that I and the other uh, post-colonial and decolonial and feminist uh, researchers have, even though Feminism and decolonialism are by no means centered in those books. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, Helen Longineau is a very well-known as a feminist scholar um, and does uh, talk about it in her article, but it's not a major focus of the books. Um, so th- that's uh, one chapter where I'm uh, expanding these arguments. So um, here it's the uh, uh, what's under discussion is the unity of the sciences and the hierarchy of the sciences, the monism kind of of the sciences. Um, In the chapter on secularism, which is perhaps one of the most, I think, one of the most controversial chapters I think it was my favorite. <laughs> was it? I, well, I said to you before in our conversation that to me it read as sort of an anchor or thread for all of the other chapters. So I would like if you could elaborate a little bit the argument there for the listeners and maybe talk a bit about its sort of broader implications. Okay. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that um, I didn't, I, I'm really following along other people's work in the in the all of, all of these chapters, I mean, I, I don't mean to 
look, I mean, I, I know I'm doing original things with them. I'm bringing them into more firmly into philosophical frameworks and, and doing things with them there. But I want to uh, make clear the brilliance of the people I'm drawing on. The title of that chapter is uh, Must Science Be Secular? Is that the title? Yes, Must yes. Science Be Secular. Um, and, of course, modernity and modern sciences, if you had to pick one single thing that uh, defines them against other knowledge traditions, it would be their secularism. They think the world is, they assume the world is disenchanted, that they, they that everything in the natural and presumably social world, but it's the natural world that Galileo and the early modern scientists were interested in, uh, everything in that world can be explained in terms of uh, of purely physical aspects of the world uh, and empirical observations of the regularities of those empirical aspects. So secularism is totally central to modern Western science. Of course, it's also central to modern democracies, right? The U.S. Mm -hmm. has a separation of church and state, right? It it was at its foundation multicultural in the sense that uh, the uh, first settlers were from Europe, uh, were for the most part escaping the religious wars of Europe. So there were Catholics and Protestants who in Europe had been at war with each other and continued to be at war, um, but were part of the 13 colonies. And so the challenge in 1776 or 78 or whenever the, I didn't bring my historian, whenever the Constitution was <laughs> put together, was to find a form of democratic participation in which the church would not favor one religion over another. Um, Now, of course, how that actually worked out over the last 250 or whatever years, 30, 40 years, um, is a historical story in itself. After all, school prayers were only uh, eliminated a few decades ago, and there's still arguments over secular uh, issues about secularism and religion. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court and, you know, in all kinds of places these mm-hmm. days. Um, but um, the point of the, ch- the point in the chapter is that, meanwhile, 9-11, I mean, to pick just one major uh, impetus here, 9-11 produced a huge outpouring of anti-Islamicism. And uh, is I mean it's be- being replicated in one of our presidential candidates to this day, right? Mm-hmm. And so it challenged um, that phenomenon. Challenged a lot of intellectuals uh, who care a lot about liberal multicultural democracy to ask the question: Can the tolerance of multi- multiple religions, that is such a hallmark of Western democracies, can it tolerate also Muslims? Because there seems to be a problem you know, all over Europe to this day the, with the huge um, refugee crises. Mm-hmm. The issue is Muslims coming into these uh, supposedly formerly Christian countries. Now let's just have a little footnote right here and notice that in 1776 and indeed today in Europe, um, nobody's talking about what happened to uh, indigenous spirituality and religion, uh, let alone to the Jews, right? And there were Jews who came from Europe into the U.S. Uh, in the very early days. Uh, the issues of anti-Semitism are raised in Europe um, with this uh, Muslim uh, refugee crisis. But um, this is just to say that uh, a number of uh, intellectuals and scholars and institutions have begun to um, rethink what what a multicultural liberal secularism is. And let me just mention one of the most interesting of these um, sites. So the Social Science Research Council in the United States 
um, has, at the time I published this, uh, this book last year, three ongoing projects uh, about issues raised by uh, anti-Islamicism in, after, after 9-11. Um, religion and the public sphere, religion and international affairs, and spirituality, political engagement, and public life. And it also has a collective blog called The Imminent Frame that, quote, strives to impact contemporary debates on religion, secularism, and the public sphere in a manner consistent with the Social Science Research Council's mission of producing social science for the public good. And I want to mention two books that are immensely helpful here and have big uh, uh, philosophic participation. And these have both come out of social science research uh, council projects. One is edited by um, Craig Calhoun, who's the head of the Social Science Research Council, Michael Warner, and Jonathan Van Antwerpen, and it's entitled Varieties of Secularism in a Secular Age. That's 2007. Um, another wonderful collection has been edited by Eduardo, philosopher Eduardo Mendieta and his co-editor, um, Van Antwerpen. It's called The Power of Religion in the Public Sphere. And this second one I'm mentioning is a debate between Charles Taylor, a major theorist of uh, secularism, a, a Catholic, committed Catholic theorist of secularism, uh, um, Habermas, uh, and then um, Judith Butler, and uh, I can uh, African American philosopher uh, at Yale, uh, religious philosopher. Oh, he's just his name is just leaving my mind. But it's an absolutely terrific debate. And Judith Butler is no, is talking about also Zionism and the um, uh, uh, the democratic state of Israel's difficulties in dealing with multicultural religious uh, issues. Okay, so here's a couple of issues that are raised in these historical studies. For, I, I mentioned initially that secularism is in fact itself culturally specific. The point here is that um, a, a Catholic, a secular Catholic, has very different moral political commitments from a secular Jew or a secular Muslim or a secular Episcopalian, mm-hmm. like a bit Protestant. Um, secularism takes specific cultural forms when within each religion. That is, a secular Catholic uh, is marked by which of the officially required observances of Catholicism this this, uh, individual refuses. Those would be different from the particular observances of Judaism or of Islam. So a secular Catholic is a very different moral and ethical person, if I can put it that way, than a secular Muslim or a secular Protestant. Um, Now, this is surprising, isn't it? I mean, that (laughs) secularism itself somehow never escapes its its religious framework. Mm -hmm. It escapes certain aspects of it. I mean, there's a difference between the separation of church with a capital C and state and the separation of religious experience or spiritual experience and state. The separation of church is a much narrower um, requirement that the state not favor one religion over another. And yet notice how many states overtly uh, that are supposedly modern democratic states overtly favor one religion over another, such as England, for mm-hmm. example, where the Church of England right, is, has, still has powerful effects on uh, requirements about who, who, who's entitled to be a monarch, right? It can divorced Pekin Charles, Prince Charles become a mm-hmm. king, as officially no, because he's divorced, and so forth, right? So uh, we think of England as a modern state, but it has not separated officially church from state in the way that the U.S. thinks it has. And there are other states in Europe uh, that 
are similar, obviously. Uh, Italy is, with the Vatican part of its official establishment in a certain way. And some of the Scandinavian countries are overtly Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. Okay, so um, so uh, it looks like the history of secularism is a little more tangled than we have thought. And my argument in this chapter is that both religion and secularism have had effects on modern Western sciences, positive and negative effects on modern Western sciences. Now, remember that I also pointed out that, as everybody else I'm quoting here does, um, that secularism is also a major political requirement of, mm-hmm. of the state, so that the links between science and democracy are, are uh, what should I say, emphasized by these new histories of uh, of secularism and of um, and of what 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 constitutes uh, an appropriate uh, scientific philosophy of science stance around secularism uh, and religion. Um, one of the books, let me mention two other books I've found um, really useful on these on precisely this topic: the links between uh, democratic. Um, participation and uh, the uh, democratic commitments of science. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a collection by collection of papers by social scientists. Um, the editors are okay. So one one is a collection of papers by two political scientists. The last names are Modoud M O D O O D D and Levy, and it's called uh, uh, um, the political challenges of democracy today or something like that. I'll have to get you that title. Um, But it's fascinating because it's looking precisely at this issue of whether multicultural liberal democracies can tolerate, uh, including also uh, Muslim citizens who have the same rights to uh, their religious uh, religious um, religious commitments as do Catholics uh, and Protestants, um, and the second one is a collection by is a uh, authored book um, by Mark Brown, who's a political scientist, and it's uh, specifically focused on science. He has a deep experience in uh, science studies, the field of the social studies of. Uh, Science and Technology, Mark Brown, 2009, Science and Democracy, colon, Expertise, Institutions, and Representation. And it's an MIT Press uh, collection. So he is one of the um, few scholars specifically committed, specifically involved in not just rethinking the relationship between multicultural Liberal, liberal democracies and Islam, but thinking about the specific um, uh, consequences and uh, implications of these discussions for science and technology. And the issue, of course, is that science and democracy were linked, are twins at birth, separated at birth, <laughs> right? Um, and that we can't justify the huge expenditures that states and corporations and anybody puts into scientific and technological research unless this research is supposed to improve, quote-unquote, social welfare, is is a contribution to, quote-unquote, social progress. Mm -hmm. So all the terms of this discussion are, are under interrogation at this moment in history, democracy, science, social progress, um, and um, so my book is intended to sit in the middle of all this yeah. swirling around of, um, of uh, thinking science and technology in the midst of uh, changing uh, economic and political events in the world around it uh, and, and trying to figure out what's a philosopher of science to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I want to mention that chapter one specifically uh, is focused on the the most significant changes, in my view, um, in the institutionalization of science 
uh, and in the environment in which science finds itself uh, since uh, the Vienna Circle arrives uh, in the U.S. Uh, just before and after World War II. Um, so that chapter looks at um, a number of different um, events, uh, such as um, the uh, the shift in funding of science and technology from corporations such as Sylvania uh, or um, AT&T or General Electric, who were the major funders of scientific research before World War II, to the federal government of the U.S. The federal government was in the U.S. was not highly invested in scientific and technological research until the Manhattan Project, the Atomic Bomb Project, of the late 1930s, and then the founding of the National Science Foundation in the late 1940s. I forget whether it was 1947 or 48. So it's just when the federal government in the U.S. is getting massively, massively involved in scientific and technological research that the leaders of the scientific community propose the autonomy of science position, right? That science is autonomous from society. They are, they are putting this forth in the late 1940s at precisely the moment when science is becoming much less autonomous from the federal government and, as it turns out, not that autonomous from corporations either. So it clearly was not a factual statement, the autonomy of science. What was it? Well, David Hollinger uh, in, historian of science David Hollinger in his uh, wonderful book entitled uh, Science, Jews, and Secularism is that the name of it? Uh, excuse me for one second here Science, Jews, and Secular Cultures 1996 Princeton Press uh, David Hollinger points out that the leaders of the scientific community wanted to block both Congress and the general public from thinking they had a right to say what scientific research projects should be pursued and how they were be, to be pursued as they, as Congress and the public correctly believe they had a right to do with all other federal spending. So that autonomy of science thesis was an attempt to keep Congress and the public out of the, uh, out of the process of, of scientific research in effect. Um, so that's one, one very important change in the institutionalization of science um, that um, led the uh, Carnap and uh, Reichenbach, uh, and speaking from UCLA, UCLA is where Reichenbach ended up. I've had dinner with, um, uh, she uh, recently passed, but Maria Reichenbach. Mm -hmm. Reichenbach invited Carnap and a whole bunch of the British and uh, European philosophers of science to UCLA. My first office at UCLA in the philosophy department had been Carnap's office. Wow. <laughs> um, and I had been a great, my um, very admired by me philosophy of science teacher in graduate school had been a student of Carnap's. And we had a moment of silence every year in his philosophy of science class on Carnap's birthday. And here I was in Carnap's office at UCLA. Okay, I'm going to go back to my narrative <laughs> now. So, um, so uh, Carnap and Reichenbach and the other logical uh, Vienna Circle people had to pull back the, the social and political uh, aspect of their um, their logical positivism when confronting. McCarthyism in the Cold War and the, and the uh, founding of NSF and the fears about Congress. And, you know, that was some era to live through, <laughs> the 40s and 50s. Um, so that, that was one important uh, phenomenon that has uh, changed. But then um, there's also the fact that the, the uh, third, third world development came out of the modernization Theory, science, and mm -hmm. technology, as uh, uh, President Truman said in his second inaugural, inaugural address, 1949, um, 
the U.S. now has the West now has the scientific and technological ability to reduce the huge poverty in the world, which uh, for that era that poverty was regarded as precisely the cause of the social unrest that had created World War II, and of course, meanwhile. There was a were atomic bomb, nuclear bombs. So any um, the development project, third world development projects of the U.S. and the United Nations, which was funded in, in the same era, uh, were intended to um, block the possibility of a third world war, which could be you know much worse um, than the first and second. But by 1970, those efforts to reduce poverty in the third world through these modernization schemes, development schemes, had clearly failed. The gap between the rich and the poor had vastly increased in the development era, and it has continued to increase through to today. Um, so this was a second ch- significant change for the environment within which science and technology worked. The failures of third world development seemed to implicate modern science and technology. How come they couldn't reduce poverty? Um, Then there was the rise in the 1960s of all the anti-authoritarian social movements, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam war movement, feminism, um, health issues, uh, anti-poverty movements, um, and and so forth, which all had uh, scientific and technological interests. And they they had... Each had kinds of knowledge they wanted about nature and social relations that were not being provided by uh, the existing uh, scientific and technological projects. Moreover, globalization, some people think it started in 1942, but let's move up to the 1970s. It clearly, with the Internet, had uh, uh, extra resources starting in the 1970s. Um, globalization has had both huge negative effects on scientific research and on uh, politics around the world. Uh, but um, a sociologist of science, David Hess, has pointed out it also has had positive effects on scientific research. For one thing, it has put into our classrooms on both sides of the podium kinds of people who would never have been there 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, the workforce of science is much more diverse now in terms of women, in terms of, uh, let's just talk about the U.S., uh, ethnic and racial minorities within the U.S. Um, also, thanks to the Internet, uh, physicists in Japan and Switzerland and Stanford can work together on the same uh, scientific problem, uh, so can sociologists from different countries around the world. Um, so uh, the the globalization projects have uh, increased the diversity of, of the workforce, and they've had other kinds of uh, positive effects too that Hess goes into that inter- are interesting, such as um, changing the forms this the uh, forms of communication between scientists and their Publics that they're permitted to get away with. There's much more public participation in science these days. There are hundreds and thousands of civic science and uh, citizen science movements uh, in the U.S. and around the world. For example, every disease in the U.S. now has its citizen science uh, movement. Of uh, the classic example was AIDS where uh, Steve Epstein did a huge study of this that was uh, very helpful, Uh, and how the guys who had AIDS and their uh, loved ones uh, formed together to uh, uh, collect data and pressure the federal government to put AIDS research on its agenda. Um, Epstein tells the story of that ongoing uh, citizen science movement. I think it was muscular dystrophy in France, that uh, got on the French uh, scientific research agenda only because the parents of kids with muscular dystrophy <laughs> gathered the initial uh, data and pressured uh, the government. So um, th- these changing relations between sciences and their publics, whether they're created by globalization or modernization or whatever, 
um, make for make the need for rethinking the philosophies of science we have. Um, and then there's the rise since at least the 1960s of science studies movements. Mm-hmm. This is I'm talking about the sociology of science, the history of science. Uh, the anthropology of science, economics, politics of science. Um, and this is, in fact, one of my, maybe my major disciplinary field these days is science studies. 4S, the Society for the Social Studies of Science, has gotten huge and very exciting. And it's a fundamental principle of science studies that sciences and their societies co-produce each other. Mm-hmm. A racist society will tend to produce racist research projects that in turn provide resources for racist public policy. Mm-hmm. And similarly around uh, disability issues, around gender, around colonialism, and, and so forth. Um, and, and of course, this field of the social studies of science didn't in it, didn't it wasn't the first group to produce this. This was exactly what the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. the women's movement uh, and early, even earlier uh, poor people's movements and so forth were saying. And so from this perspective, one can see that standpoint theory and its strong objectivity is at the kind of abstract philosophic end of a whole continent, of a whole uh, arc of research projects that I'm going to uh, say fall under what's known in the social sciences as participatory action research. Mm -hmm. And that term is familiar to philosophers of social science, but maybe not to others. Um, And this originated under that name in the 1960s with the uh, anti-poverty programs of the Johnson administration. And it was an attempt to give poor people a voice in federal policy around uh, anti-poverty measures. Um, and so what they would do is not make up uh, a great ideal theory of uh, 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 economic equality, uh, but go to the already formed social groups and start with their issues. What, did, what were their concerns? And develop met- research methodologies and, uh, that could also have effects on public policy and I'm going to talk about this in standpoint terms, Mm -hmm. that started off from the daily lives of economically and politically vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. So the social justice movements were in fact producing these participatory action research models, and they um, are very different from typical philosophic models of how to how to think, um, how, to, how to create theory. As the uh, Latin American uh, legal political theorist uh, Boaventura de, Santos, uh, de Sousa Santos puts the point, um, research should be rear-guard theory, not avant-guard theory. And philosophers tend to do avant-guard theory. Namely, we, you know, Kant comes out at noon, everyone... <laughs> huddle up in our studies and think up a great, wonderful, ideal uh, kind of uh, ethical or political or scientific method uh, situation and then apply it in a judgmental way to what particular researchers are doing in some context or what uh, people are morally or ethically doing if you working off in those arenas. But for this decolonial, Latin American decolonial theorist, Santos, um, it's important to start out from the existing social justice movements. And he wrote a book, I think it's entitled The World Social Forum. You know, the World Social Forum formed in Brazil to protest uh, U.S. and international and U.N. financial policy. And it has gathered every time the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank meet and protested the way those institutions fail to, uh, fail to um, create um, uh, policies that in fact benefit uh, the worst off. And so um, this is a, a way of talking. This is, this is a very important shift in, 
is it a shift or not? I, <laughs> I mean, it's a shift in how scientific research, philosophies of, philosophies of science. But if you go back to Galileo and early modern science, they were, their thinking about science was shaped by the, the fact that they existed at the moment when middle, medieval um, aristocracies and monarchies were failing and the uh, Catholic Church was coming under increased criticism and um, colonialism was uh, in, in, uh, in the Americas was about to take off and so forth and so on. That is, modern sciences and its philosophies have always been shaped by mm-hmm. uh, progressive and regressive uh, social uh, phenomena. I argue in the book that um, the strong objectivity that I'm advocating here and many other um, philosophers and social scientists and natural scientists have, I call it strong objectivity is my term for it, but the idea is uh, much more uh, widely produced, um, that it is real objectivity. It's not some funny little feminist form. Mm-hmm. And the way, the test for that is that it, it strengthens two of the fundamental commitments of the older notion of value-free objectivity. One is the, com- the commitment to be fair to the data, to all of the relevant data. And feminism and the civil rights movement and so forth add kinds of data that one has to be fair to that were, not, that were neglected, that were systematically denied, whatever that were not considered by the older racist and sexist and colonial theories. So first of all, fairness to the data. And secondly, fairness to one's severest critics, actual critics or imagined critics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all that scientific method ever could produce was results of research that are less false (laughs) and all and only the, the uh, hypotheses tested as of today, right? They, it never produced truths mm-hmm. or certainties. It always, it, it was a principle to be, that it had to be held open to the appearance of new data, black swans or something or other, mm-hmm. um, uh, continent, continental plates, right? Um, tectonic plates. And to the reorganization of data by new conceptual frameworks, right, by new and innovative ways in which people were thinking, mm-hmm. uh, such as the production of the idea of tectonic plates, the idea of tectonic plates, not just the fact of it. Um, so um, here we have new social movements producing new scientific methodologies that require rethinking the philosophies of science that were developed and quite successful in earlier eras, eras that are no longer the ones we're in today. So I've covered here a couple of... (laughs) So much. Yeah, it's great. We're running a little bit short on time, but I'd like to ask, the cast of characters here is vast, and the bibliography of the book is just immense. Could you speak a little bit about who your sort of intended audience is and maybe about how it's been received so far? We've been making the argument and others uh, that sciences and their societies co-produce one another. So I'm sure some of that uh, refrain of response might be in this book as well. But this book, you extend a little beyond um, the sort of specifically feminist stance you've taken before. Um, Has that changed its reception? Is that a different, an angle at a different audience? Thank you. That's that's a great question. Um, so let me start with how has it been received and point out that um, in terms of evaluations of it, reviews, it usually takes one to three years for any book reviews to get out. A couple have come out and they've been uh, enthusiastic. And I'll talk about the context in which uh, some of this has happened. So first of all, there was a Pacific uh, American Philosophical Association session on the book in March. Mm-hmm. And that session was fabulous, if I do say so myself. Um, there were wonderful commentators. It had been put together by philosopher Alan Richardson from um, UBC, University of British Columbia. And uh, the commentators were Naomi Sheeman and uh, Chris 
Christy um, Dotson from Michigan State, and Jill Fellows from Douglas College in Canada. Uh, and it was just very lively. There were people standing around the walls. It was full. They raised wonderful questions about the book. Um, subsequently, that session was requested by the journal Philosophical Studies uh, for its annual issued uh, with selected symposia from the Pacific APA, right? So at this point, Alan Richardson and Jill Fellows have written wonderful uh, critiques, and I'm writing a, a response to them. And this will appear in uh, Phil's studies. And uh, Alan Richardson pointed out to me that it was really great that it was going into philosophical studies because that had been the first journal to say that it was a journal of analytic philosophy. Ah. <laughs> so we, we get it in the right place. And since the book was published by the University of Chicago Press, in which Thomas Kuhn's book was the last one in the Unity of Science series, and I uh, purposely, uh, what should I say, mimic in the subtitle, Another logic of scientific <laughs> research. I'm, I'm, I'm mimicking and purposely mistranslating Popper's, a title of Popper's book and, you know, that era. So anyway, we've got a great philosophic studies. Is, uh, so if you want to know the audience, we've got it, some of it right here, right? Yeah. <laughs> is people who still find logical positivism compelling. And I have to, as you, I, you know, I have to say, if I had been Carnap and Reichenbach, I would have done the same thing they did. That was one confusing and difficult moment in the 40s and 50s in which to think about science and, and democracy. So I'm a friend of logical positivism, even though, you know, and a, and a, I'm a, the way I describe myself is I'm a recovering positivist. <laughs> I have to go to a 12-step program and... <laughs> every once in, once in a while. And in this chapter I talked about where with Reich's book, in a way I'm resuscitating logical positivism, right? I'm saying, look, it was for its era, it was a darn good philosophy of science. And the reason why we don't like it today, you know, why there's so many criticisms today, is more because of the political environment it found itself in when it encountered McCarthyism in the Cold War, then its inherent its inherent commitments to a, an important relationship between democracy, liberal democracy, and a liberal multicultural democracy and modern Western science. Okay, so that's, wonder, that's one uh, great place where some reviews of it, in effect, will be in print shortly. And then uh, Social Epistemology, that journal's uh, review, Tronic Journal, uh, published a review of the book to which I responded, and then the authors of the review responded, and I may respond to them. So there's a discussion going on in the journal Social Epistemology. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I normally have a very active um, lecture schedule, so I don't want to attribute this all to the last book. This is my 17th book mm -hmm. <laughs> or a special uh, edited special issue of a journal um, and I'm not counting all those issues of signs I edited here so I don't want to attribute this all to the book but in fact I've had some really exciting ones recently and I have more coming up I was the key, uh, keynoted at a great conference in Brasilia Brazil uh, in June in, in May that was on Latin American science and technology studies and I'm co-editing that collection of papers and stand so standpoint theory is Latin American post-colonial science and technology studies and, and is it a kind of application mm -hmm. I, except that I don't like that language <laughs> I'm learning from them how better to uh, think about some of these uh, philosophic issues and then in June I was one of the keynoters at uh, in Taiwan at the Pacific Science Conference, which is the equivalent of the AAAS for the Pacific area region. So that was pretty exciting. And then I was keynoted at a conference in Hong Kong in June that's on world knowledge. And so I'm doing, uh, adding to this world knowledge uh, volume, a paper on um, sciences from below, mm -hmm. right? What does, it mean, what does it mean to do? 
science is from below, which is a way of talking about participatory action research and standpoint theory. Um, and I've got other uh, terrific, I mean, exciting to me, um, discussions coming up. The next one is in uh, two weeks I'll be in Mexico. Uh, I, I'm sorry, my Spanish is terrible, but it's the <laughs> University uh, of the Americas Puebla, uh, which is uh, about an hour outside of Mexico City, and it will be on the book on objectivity and, and diversity um, and how that is relevant to the Latin American science studies uh, situation. So I, in my own work, I've been tr- this kind of work I've been trying to develop, let me call it theory from the South, uh, the North, Europe, the West, however one wants to talk about it, Europe and the U.S., has tended to uh, to use the South as a source uh, as a source of raw materials, <laughs> um, labor, and in research data. But all its theoretical apparatuses, its theoretical frameworks, come from the North. And so there's a big movement around the globe these days to explore what it means to develop theory from the South where the data is from the North. So post-colonial theory, you can think of as that kind of theory. Mm -hmm. It comes from the people who were colonized, you know, the impetus for it. And it's fundamentally a study of the colonizers, Mm-hmm. Right, it doesn't replicate the "we're studying you" stance in an in an imperial way of of social sciences and natural sciences. Typically, typical attitude toward the South: we study them, but the idea they should study us. <laughs> is, uh, so I, I'm very involved in these um, these works and they these projects, indigenous knowledge projects, and so forth. Um, be and I have to say, because they like standpoint theory, yeah. it, it offers them a, a way, a theory that emerged originally from the civil rights movements and post-colonial movements and uh, women's movements and, and so forth. So I think of my work uh, of the importance of standpoint theory and strong objectivity of turning powerful political positions into powerful methodological directives. I mean, it's one thing to criticize dominant ways of doing things. It's quite another matter to figure out how to do them better. Mm-hmm. And this is very, my work is very much committed to how to do them better part of that um, argument. That's really great. Thank you. We're short of time, so although... I think there's a lot of a lot that's generative here for our concerns with global ethics and politics. I'll leave that to the listener to speculate on themselves. <laughs> and thank you, Dr. Harding, for joining us today. It was really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Emily. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And stay tuned for more books in global ethics and politics. <laughs>